Hebrews chapter 12, and this evening be in verses 1 and 2. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which so... I almost quoted my new King James. <laughs> clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Lord, uh, this is one of those texts where we could honestly spend a long, long, long time in, Lord. It is so rich and so full. I thank you, Lord, for having given us this great encouragement to keep on keeping on with you because you know us so well, Lord. You know that things get hard and things get difficult and frustration and burnout and difficulty and sin and distraction and wickedness are all things that daily, daily, daily compete with our walk with you. And Lord, I ask and pray that you would take this text here, Lord, and that it would be one of those touchstones in our lives that when we do go through these difficulties and these trials, that we would be able to come back to and find a place of comfort and peace and hope, Lord. May we always look to you, Jesus our good, our glorious King and Savior, because you have provided us everything that we need for life and godliness. And so we look to you right now and ask that you would fill us with your Spirit that we might have <clears throat> minds that are focused and clear, hearts that are sensitive and ready to follow after you, and that are spirits would be such that we would receive refreshment and strength and hope, Lord, for the life to come. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Ha, I almost quoted New King James. This is a passage that, for me, was one of the, oh, earliest points of Bible memorization once I became a Christian. I remember, I remember clearly one of the first big Bible teachers that I was a particular fanboy of was coming to town and was going to do a, a Saturday and then a Sunday morning at this church that I was attending. So I was excited and, and I anticipated it because this guy was a good preacher. He loved Jesus. <clears throat> he knew the word. And he 
just had this manner about him that was so encouraging and just compelled, just sucked you in to what he was saying. And he got up and he preached his very first message on Hebrews chapter 11. The whole chapter <clears throat> just went right on through it. And then the next one was on these two verses here. And I don't remember the first sermon except that it was about Hebrews 11 because it set up Hebrews 12. And I don't remember anything else that he preached. In fact, I couldn't tell you anything else he preached ever. (laughs) Even though I've heard him preach many times and have some of his cassette tapes still laying around somewhere probably in, in the garage or something like that. But this sermon, this message, this text is one of those very few messages that I have a clear memory of. You know, right? Most of our lives, we don't remember the sermons that we preached, right? We, we don't. How many of you remember learning English? <laughs> it just is a part of it. You just talk. You're just, it's just such the warp and woof of our existence. It's kind of silly to even ask that question, right? Well, honestly, spiritual life is like that. What sermons do you remember? Well, you don't remember very many, Right? But they formed you and made you who you are right now. And will continue to do that same work on in the future. But there are certain words that you can look back and remember learning. Pejorative. I like that word. Not because I like to be pejorative. (laughs) But it's fun to say. And I find it to be extremely useful. And I remember the first time that I heard it, that I learned it, and that I put it into my vocabulary rotation. Well, this particular sermon is one of these ones that I remember distinctly and clearly. And although as we're going to go through this, I am going to differ a little bit with that particular sermon as I've matured and moved from a different theological perspective. It still is a passage that I come back to often. Therefore... What's the point of the book, folks? Every single one of you ought to know by now. (laughs) The point of the book is there is a group of Hebrew Christians in Rome that were struggling with leaving the faith because the persecution coming against them was so strong, so difficult, that it was cutting to their very heart. And they were threatened with abandoning the faith. So the Hebrew writer, the author, the preacher, he comes in and he's preaching. He's writing to them to strengthen their faith, to bolster them, to encourage them. And by encourage them, I mean aggressive encouragement. (laughs) Getting a hold of them and saying, no, 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 what you are doing is not wise It's not good. It's not beneficial for you. It will not be healthy for your soul. And then he gives all of these warnings that we've covered over and over and over and over again as we've gone through this book. And then finally we got to this hall of faith as it's called in Hebrews chapter 11. And it goes through all of these people who endured much difficulty at the hands of the world, at the hands of our enemy Satan, and yet endured. 
yet by faith they persevered. All of them imperfect people. All of them we could look back and find points in their life where sin was on display and frankly quite extreme. And yet they're all commended for their faith. They're not put down for their moments of weakness and moments of sin and moments of struggle, but commended because of the endurance that they had because of the faith that they possessed. And so when we come to this word, therefore, we remember in light of all of these people who have endured so much, now it's our turn, right? I think I mentioned last week, maybe I'm mistaken, but now we get into a very practical section of the book, a, a section that most of us are going to be familiar with. This section, the next section on discipline, the section after that about not keeping your hands drooping but continuing to run with endurance, Chapter, or, and then that whole big long thing about the contrast of the old covenant and the new covenant that ends chapter 12 that I'm excited to get to too. And then chapter 13, a lot of practical shotgun approach, bam, 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 kind of thing, little jabs that he gets you with right there at the very end of the book. But here, we, look what he says, since we, first thing that's super important to note here. The writer, the author, does not see himself as more superior than his audience. The preacher can never see himself as more superior than his audience. Take care how you stand because watch out you might fall. That's my paraphrase. Be careful how you stand. Don't be cocky, preacher. And that goes for all of us, doesn't it? We definitely do not want to be cocky in our spiritual life, cocky in our faith. Think, like the Bible says, more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, right? We are all sinners, all saved by grace, all what we are purely by God's mercy. So because we all together collectively are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside the weight and sin which so easily, I'm going to do it again, so close, clings to us so closely, easily ensnares us. That's what the New King James says. So if I accidentally say it wrong, you know it now. We are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, This cloud of witnesses has been described as all of these people who have gone before us and all of the people who aren't included in this list but are yet in heaven and they are in heaven watching our lives right now as it were, cheering us on, motivating us, keep on going. You got this, Raul. Keep on, man. Abraham's up there clapping his hands going, come on, dude, you got this. Lord, help me. But if heaven is me up there watching what's going on down here, that doesn't sound a lot like heaven. (laughs) Does it? Does it to you? That sounds super disappointing. (laughs) 
I don't think for a moment that any of the people are before the very throne of God right now, concerned and distracted with what's going on here on this world at all. They're before God, (coughs) absolutely enthralled in worship, caught up in praise, caught up in the glories of heaven, and don't care a lick about what's going on here on this earth. As much as I love sweet old Grandma Okra, she is not worried, if she's in heaven, she's not worried about me and my spiritual state right now. She is worshiping the Lord God Almighty. She's just praising there before the throne, as is all of our loved ones who have gone on ahead of us and have finished the race, including Moses, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of the alls of the people that we've just recently looked at. They are not up there watching us. That's not, we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, so keep on. Hey, Fred, Moses is watching you. He's right there on the 50-yard line in the stands watching you. You better make this one kind of thing, right? No, the motivation is these people were people of like passions just like you. They had similar fears. They had similar bents. They had similar complexities in their makeup. They had similar highs and similar lows. Similar points of joy and similar points of desperation, discouragement, and depression. We see that all throughout the pages of Scripture. These people were just like us. No, the great cloud of witnesses that motivates us is that these people who were just like us had a similar faith to ours, and even though they struggled, they kept on keeping on. The great cloud of witnesses is a motivation. It's a witness to us that it is good to keep on following him. It's a witness to us that it is good to keep on following him. Now that makes perfect sense in the context of the book, doesn't it? That's what these Hebrews needed. They needed a point of reference, right? They needed this Moses. They all held up in such high esteem, but he lived by faith. You Hebrews need to keep on keeping on by faith. He was no different than you are. If he did it, you can do it too. We're surrounded by this cloud of witnesses And what it teaches us is that Jesus is worth it. Beloved, Jesus is worth it. I can't say that enough, right? I typically preach for about 40 to 42 minutes. My goal is a little shorter. I never hit my goal. But I want you to know I could come up here and I think I would do you a service still if I just for the next 42 minutes said, Jesus is worth it. 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 
I could do that and it would have an effect because he is worth it. And that's what you need. That's the motivation they needed. We're surrounded by these people that saw Jesus is worth it and I'm going to keep on keeping on. Now they looked from a shadow, right? They saw the promises ahead of them. We have the fulfillment. They saw and still apprehended by faith the fact that Jesus is worth it even though they didn't know Jesus was the one who was worth it yet. They just knew God prom- God's promises are faithful and true. And I know he's promised that if I follow him by faith, he will reward me, therefore it's worth it. They looked forward to what they couldn't absolutely comprehend we look back on him who we can comprehend and who we have apprehended and beloved he is worth it he is amen (laughs) he is worth it he is absolutely completely worth it so because jesus is so good and so glorious and so wonderful and so worth it what are you to do in response to that well He tells us, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, easily ensnares us. Let us do these two things, lay aside a weight, lay aside the sin, because these two things cling so closely, or my new King James, easily ensnares us. Okay? Hey, sweetheart. Hi. I think there's an important distinction that's made here. I don't think that he's using these two words synonymously. I could be wrong. I don't think I am, though. I think he brings up weights because what he's doing in talking to these Hebrews especially is they are struggling in certain areas and in certain ways and we are going to understand this that might not specifically be a violation of one of the Ten Commandments. Certain things that might not be outright sin. Outright carnal, outright just, we can point to chapter and verse and say, yeah, this is wrong. But yet, there's something that hinders us in this race, that binds us, that keeps us from running it to our fullest, right? Now, in one of the commentaries I read, which I love, but is a little bit old and a little bit on the fundamentalist side... They took the opportunity to take these weights and to point out, you know, you don't play cards. No joke. Don't go to the theater or the picture shows, the movies. Of course, you don't even bring up gambling or drinking or anything like that because those would fall into the sin category, of course. But he brings up these things that we look at today, dancing. And we, we kind of snicker at how passe that old fundamentalist rigidness is. 
<clears throat> However, I, as much as I, I, I realize the silliness of some of that, there's, a, I think, a wisdom in keeping aware of what is actually happening in certain of those activities and being care because there's certainly, for me, I, I you know, have no problem dancing, love dancing. Not going to do it up here in front of all y'all, but it's something that I do at home, put on music, dance around with the kids and with Charlotte, and Andy makes fun of me, and I laugh and appreciate that, and it's fine, and it's good. And I, you know, used to go out dancing all the time before I was a Christian and that kind of thing. So for me, even though I did a lot of it before I was a Christian, the connotation is not sinful. I don't have any sinful attachments to dancing myself. I don't, my kids are in the ballet company. There's no, I don't have sinful attachments to the ballet, as it were. However, there are certainly, we understand, forms and ways of dancing that are certainly and could be sexual and be provocative. And because of that could be a point of being a problem with certain people. So by the phrase wait, what I want to point out, and I think is the reason why the Hebrew writer made the distinction, is there are categories of Christian liberty that could cause you to stumble in this area of keeping on keeping on, of endurance. There are certain areas of Christian liberty that could stumble you in your endurance run with the Lord, could deviate you from the path, could cause you to become distracted from the Lord. If you used to read your Bible and have particular studies and now you find yourself partaking in some other exercise in the time that you used to and you don't have the same time that you did, perhaps that's a weight. I'm not going to presume to know what those things are. Like I have said many times, I could have a big old list up here of these things that I'm calling weights. And they might not touch your particular area, or you might hear calling me that area sin, and I'm not doing that. But I know for each and every one of us that there are certain things that our mind focuses attention on that are not categorically sin, but that do hinder us and keep us from walking with the Lord to our fullest potential. And that is a point, and I think he brings that up first, because that's probably going to be an easier thing to rein in than the sin that we still have in our flesh. Let us lay aside every weight. If you have thought of something in my ramblings here about this concept of weight that isn't sin, then I would encourage you to mentally maybe jot it down and take some serious time this week and pray about that specific instance and that specific action that you're partaking in. Whatever it is, pray about it. If the Lord is genuinely convicting you of it, then give it up. Let it go. Let, uh, lay aside this weight that is ensnaring you, that is clinging to you so closely. If he's not convicting you and you're just praying about it, as you've heard me mention this, but you don't experience that conviction, then don't lay it aside. Don't in some legalistic way think that, oh, I need to now because, you know, the sermon and all that. Don't, no. 
Let the Lord will lead you and convict you. I'm fully confident of the Holy Spirit's ability to do that. He is good at what he does. That's certain. The sin which clings to us so closely. Now, these are things that are indeed over and over and repeatedly told to us, don't do these things. You know, in, in um, 2 Timothy is just a couple of books back, right? Um, or is it just one book back? Two books, yeah, a couple of books back. In chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, it says this, Understand that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. People will be... Lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous and reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, and these, verse 5, having an appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. Now, this is not a comprehensive list. And we could easily go to Exodus chapter 20 and you can read those Ten Commandments there and see similar kinds of things. But we understand that there are lists all throughout Scripture of sins. These are all sins. Now, I am not so naive as to think that as I read this list, we are holy from such matters. In fact, I'm quite confident that there are things in this list that you struggle with right now today. Because we're sinners. We're redeemed sinners. We're born again sinners. But we still have not yet been fully sanctified. The Romans 8 word is glorified. Right? I love to say we are at best partially sanctified. And there is a part of that unsanctified self of us that loves the sin. That loves some of these attributes that I just read about. And these particular things we can still practice as Christians. It says <clears throat> we have an appearance of godliness but deny the power of avoid such people. We want to make sure that we do not fall into the category of being these lovers of these kind of things, have an appearance of godliness, and are therefore duplicitous, hypocrites, doing one thing and acting another way. Paul writes in chapter 4 of the same epistle, knowing that the times are going to come when people are going to want to live in their sin, and still participate in the church as well, he says the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. They'll have itching ears. And so they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own pleasure, and they'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths.
the writer of the Hebrews is warning that church and those people from that very thing. The weight, whatever it was for them, the sin of turning their back on the Lord, of denying their faith in Christ, and going back to following after myths. Old Covenant Judaism, which was supposed to point forward to Christ, but when Christ the fullness had come and it didn't collapse, people still clung on to it desperately. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. How closely? I, I'm not e- I don't even know. There's so many times in my own life and probably in yours too, if you're anything like me, where you're just trucking along, living your life, and all of a sudden you do or you say something and you think, where in the world did that come from? Either I thought I had conquered that sin a long time ago and had overcome it, or I had thought, oh, that's not one I struggle with. Maybe some other people do, but not good old Pat. And yet it rears its ugly head long, long, long down the road. And I realized that the Lord had been so gracious to me that when I first got saved, he didn't reveal all of my ungodliness to me. (laughs) Otherwise, I would be a wreck and probably would never progress. But the Lord has been gentle and delicate in how he deals with me and reveals things to me. So now what I mean by this is there are certain things that I see in my own life as sin that I still do struggle with because it clings so closely to me. Only the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Only the word of God can rightly divide between the thoughts and intentions of your heart. Only the word of God can strip away that which is sin that clings so closely to you, nothing else will do it. Not fellowship, Not discipleship, not an accountability partner, not a home Bible study, not confession, not communion, the Word of God. The Word of God, the Word of God, the Word of God is what we need. This is why this is the pinnacle of what we do in worship, because it's the Word of God that rightly divides us, that rightly discerns us, that rightly and accurately communicates to our soul what it is we so desperately need and removes that which we don't need at all. So let us... Lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. How do we do that? The word of God. He's already told us in chapter 4. So let us then run with endurance the race that is set before us. The Christian life is not passive. You are not called to just be a passive recipient of blessings from the Holy Spirit. We are called to be active in our lives as Christians. We are to run with endurance. The race as a Christian is not a sprint. I know that's hard for some of us because, you know what, we want it to be done. I do. There's so many times where I think, why can't this just be over? Why can't I just go to heaven? 
Why, why do I still breathe this breath? Why does my heart still continue to beat? Why? Why can't I just be home and be with you, Lord? Because the life that he has given me is a life to run with endurance. And it glorifies God as I walk with the Lord and as I continue to endure and continue to persevere. The race set before us is life. From the point of being born again, whenever that was for you, to the time you die. Now for some of people, it's a thief on the cross kind of thing, right? Where they're on their deathbed and there they realize they're about to go and meet their maker. And there at that moment they offer up that repentance and faith to the Lord. And they are received with open arms into the love that God has for them into an eternal bliss and true paradise. And for some of us, we're like those workers who at first thing in the morning went and encountered the Lord and he said, come follow me and we have. And so we have endured a lifetime of following after him. And our reward will be given to us in heaven, but sometimes we have to go a long, long, long Long time working for the Lord. So how do we do this? We do it with the word of God, but the word of God reveals to us Jesus. Verse 2. Looking to Jesus. Notice he is not in the great cloud of witnesses. That's important. It's important, first of all, for the Hebrew believers because what he's doing in writing to them in giving them this great cloud of witnesses, this hall of faith, is he's giving to them people who are just like them and have gone through and have endured to the end. But Jesus isn't in that list because Jesus is not one who lived by faith And endured to the end just by faith like we do. Instead, he is the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the one who has given us this faith to begin with. We look to Jesus because he is the object of our faith. None of these people in the great cloud of witnesses were the object of their faith. Or they should have been. I'm sure there were some of these Hebrew believers that were really struggling with their faith in Abraham and faith in Moses. I'm sure that was a real weight and sin on their part. But Jesus is to be the object of our faith, that motivating thing that we look to all of the time to give us that motivation to keep on. Because, first of all, he is the founder of our faith. He's said this several times in the book so far. So it shouldn't be a surprise when we get to uh, when we get to it here. Verse 10 of chapter 2. It was fitting that Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. In chapter 6, in verse 19, it says, We have this. As a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Having become a high priest after 
the order of Melchizedek. In chapter 10 and verse 20, the author writes, or verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. He is the founder of our faith. He is the one who has not only established the church, but has given each one of us entry into his kingdom and into his heaven. But he doesn't just stop there. He didn't just save you and give you faith and give you this church, give you his word to get you kind of on the road, and now it's up to you. But he is also the perfecter of your faith. He didn't leave you to your own devices. You see, all of this he's saying here, run with endurance, keep on keeping on. He's saying, God has given you the beginning, he's given you the end, and he's there all along the way to get you through. So keep on looking to him and trusting him and walking with him. In Philippians in chapter 1, Philippians 1, I think it's verse 6, am I right? Yeah, Philippians 1, 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Beloved, we look to Jesus. The place Jesus is revealed to us is not in some modern book you're going to find at the bookstore where Jesus is calling you. Or some kind of you know, new revelation or some book about somebody who came back from the dead and saw heaven and saw Jesus or something like that. That's all nonsense, folks. Jesus is revealed to us in the pages of sacred scripture. The word of God, the word of God, the word of God. There's a reason we have four gospels. And it's to give us a great and grand vision of Jesus Christ. Because he is worth it. What did Jesus do? Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We look unto Jesus. Jesus had a joy that was set before him. And that joy, beloved, is you, it is me, and it is most importantly the accomplishing of the Father's will in redeeming the people God had given to him. The Father had given a people to Christ. Jesus said in John chapter 5 that I only do what the Father tells me to do. I only do the will of the Lord. John chapter 6, he says that all those the Father has given to me will come to me and the ones who the Father has given to me will never be cast out because the joy that was set before the Lord was one in that he would accomplish the Father's purpose, glorifying the Father through the salvation of us. We're the objects of this joy because... The redeemed people are the objects of God's glory. But Jesus endured the cross. And note it says here, 
that he despised the shame of it. Now, I have heard much pushback against this. That no, Jesus always loved the cross. That he looked forward to the cross. That that was something, that was the very, the very food of his existence. And I remember talking about this with one pastor one time. And he was very, very exercised that I had quoted this passage. And I guess he apparently didn't realize it was in the Bible. But he said he never despised the cross. Well, Deuteronomy chapter 21, and I, it, it's in there somewhere, where it talks about how the fact that anyone is cursed when they're hung on a tree. And Galatians chapter 3 teaches us that Christ endured the curse for us. And I can tell you with certainty that Christ, when he sweat great drops of blood and he begged the Father for that cup to pass from him, what was so upsetting to him was this shame. He was about to bear the curse of God for us. But even though he despised the shame, even though he recoiled against the curse that he was about to bear, he still endured. And he is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The message that he ends with is crystal clear. Hebrew believers, where else are you going to go? You're going to walk away from Christ and turn your back on him? Where are you going to look? You look to that cloud of witnesses, you're not going to find Jesus there because he is greater than those cloud of witnesses. He was the object of their faith. He is the founder and perfecter of your faith. He, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, even hating and despising the shame of that cross and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrew believer, where else are you going to go? And sovereign joy... My beloved, beloved, beloved fellow churchmen, churchwomen, where are we going to go? We're going to go to Jesus. There's nowhere else to go. He is the best of all beings and beloved, he is worth it. Lord, we love, love, love you. That you would take upon yourself, us and our shame and our sinful standing. And that you would, Lord, give us new life, hope, vibrancy in you. Lord, we pray that as we go through this life and the struggles that we go through are very real, so very real, so very poignant, so difficult, that we would not be shipwrecked by them. And while we might struggle through them and fight with them, that we would find endurance as we look to you, Jesus, the author and perfecter, the author and finisher of our faith. Lord, we ask, a, we ask for all of us right now 
that you would strengthen us by your spirit as we hear from your word to keep on keeping on with you, Lord Jesus. In your precious name we pray. Amen.